Stay with us following Crosswalk for this week's Cross Culture Q&A. If we refuse to judge ourselves, we bring God's judgment on ourselves. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. There is a current out there in church growth circles that says, listen, what we need to do is we just need to focus on the felt needs of people. We just need to give really practical stuff and and we just need to get out there and, and be the hands and feet of Jesus everywhere we go. What makes a good church? Is it their service and ministry? Is it their love and devotion? Certainly, those are important characteristics that should be evident in a church. But what about the importance of a church's purity and theology? We need to do those things. We need to be uh, relevant in answering the questions that people are dealing with. But we cannot jettison our belief system. We cannot jettison our theology. Theology matters. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. This week, we continue our series entitled, The Revelation, as Pastor Clay takes us to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, where we find the church at Thyatira. Jesus' letter to the church there commended them for their faithfulness, their love, and their service, but it also included a stern warning. When I need to deal with something that's that important in the life of a church, I will deal with it if you won't deal with it. The church at Thyatira had become tolerant of teaching that was ungodly. Jesus makes it clear that if they don't deal with it, He will. We're glad you've joined us today. So, I'm in the gym this week, and I had an opportunity to invite somebody to church. And I got in this conversation with this young man. And in the, in the conversation, uh, I discovered that he was uh, actually uh, comes from a, a quite churched background. As a matter of fact, uh, this young man's uh, father uh, is or was a pastor. And he doesn't go to church anymore. He's, he's a great young man. Travis and I have talked to him a number of times and, and really, really nice. But um, I'd been kind of leading up to it, but I finally had an opportunity to, to invite him to church. I kind of opened the door to talk about things because he grew up as a pastor's kid. And, and I, I, I you know, could talk about that with my kids growing up in a pastor's home and everything. And, and he said, oh, well, I don't go to church a- anymore. And his reason for not going to church was uh, this, that he, as he said, it, he had talked with a lot of different people from a lot of different religions And he had just come to this place where he had decided that nobody uh, knew for sure whether there actually was just one way to heaven or not. And and nobody could really uh, prove that there wasn't multiple ways to heaven. And it just made sense to him that, uh, that, that there would be a lot of different ways since there are so many different religions throughout the world. And in response to that, I, I said this to this young man, the same illustration, I've used it countless times when talking to someone about this subject matter of, of how many ways there are in heaven. I, I said to him, I said, the problem with that perspective is that neither you nor I have the right to make that claim. We don't have the right to say there's one way or a thousand ways, not us ourselves. We can't make that determination. 
And I gave him this illustration. I said, if, if you purchased a piece of property and if you built a home on that piece of property, whose choice is it as to how many entrances into that house you want to make? And he said, it's my choice. I said, that's right, it's your house. You have, you have the right to determine. It doesn't matter whether your friends, your neighbors, or anybody else, if they think you ought to have three entrances or eight entrances or 152 entrances, it's your property, it's your house, you get to determine how many entrances, right? He said, that's right. And I said, well, if I understand it right, God owns heaven. And God is the one who has the right to determine how many entrances there are to his home. And God has clearly said in his word that there is one way, and as I tell many people many times, I'm going with the guy that rose from the dead and then claimed, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And uh, he said, well, he said, I'm, I, and here's the term he used. He said, well, I, I'm just neutral. I'm just neutral. That's what he said. Now, I want you to hear that. Listen, that, that is a popular sentiment in the culture in which we live. I'm neutral, he said. Now, this guy, he was not anti-Jesus. He, he, he would not, you would not have thought. He, he told you, he said, I've got nothing against Jesus. I'm not anti-Jesus. His dad is a strong believer, pastor, all that kind of stuff. He, he's not anti-Jesus. He, he's just come to this place, as he says, where he's neutral. In other words, uh, hey, there, there, there may be many valid forms, and we have to embrace all these different forms and religions and, and, uh, and types and thoughts and, and whatever else. Now, the question is, does God really leave us that option? Does God really allow us to remain neutral? We're going to find a lot of similarities uh, this week between the church at Pergamum that we looked at last week and the church of Thyatira, Thyatira that we're looking at this week. Both of these churches were compromising. They were compromising their convictions. They were compromising their belief systems. They were compromising their morality and their actions. But... Where the, where the church in Pergamum, the, the letter to the church in Pergamum that Jesus writes to them seems to focus on the danger of compromise, and we talked about that last week, if you were here. This week's letter to Thyatira seems to focus on the consequence of compromise. Both of them are about compromise. One talks about the danger of compromise. The other really today focuses on the consequence of compromise. Revelation chapter 2 uh, this morning is where we are again. Actually, we'll be finishing up chapter 2 uh, this morning, beginning in verse 18 and going through the end of the chapter. Uh, the text is up on the screen. You can use that. And uh, if you have a Bible, please uh, feel free to open your Bible to there as well. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent And she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, 
I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This letter, and remember, don't we're talking about seven Individual letters, they all run consecutively here in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. But it was seven separate letters sent to seven actual existing churches in Asia Minor. We've been establishing that over and over and over again, but we have guests each week. I'd like to bring you up to speed. It's interesting to me that this letter to the third church in Thyatira, of, of, all the, of all the seven letters that Jesus sends to the seven churches... The letter to the church at Thyatira is the longest. And what's interesting to me about that, I think, and I don't know that it necessarily means anything, but the longest letter that he writes, he writes to the smallest city. Thyatira was a military town, and it was also a, a commercial hub or a commercial center. Now, you, you combine a military town with, with, you know, trades and goods and everything else like that, and you're usually going to end up with a city with lots of of immorality, lots of drunkenness, lots of sexual sin, lots of idolatry, and that pretty much sums up Thyatira. It may not have had all of the power and the prestige of some of the other cities that we've already uh, looked at, but it had plenty of sin. There was plenty of sin in Thyatira, plenty of stuff going on. Jesus' letter to the, the church here uh, he introduces himself in an interesting way. He introduces himself as the Son of God. What's interesting about it, that doesn't sound unusual to us, but that's the only place in the book of Revelation it shows up. Many scholars believe that he used that introduction of himself there because one of the things Thyatira was known for is that there was a great temple to Apollo in Thyatira, and Apollo was the Greek mythological god of the sun. And so Jesus introduces himself as the Son of God. That's how he starts. Now, just to kind of change things up this week, I want to give you the BP squared up front. You remember the BP squared is the big picture biblical principle. I do this on a lot of my sermons, probably most of my sermons these days. The BP squared, the big picture biblical principle, it's the overarching overall idea of the text. In this case, the text in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18 through 29. And, And as best I see it, this is the way I would say the BP squared looks like this. If we refuse to judge ourselves, we bring God's judgment on ourselves. Say it again. If we refuse to judge ourselves, we bring God's judgment on ourselves. Now, I know that that's not necessarily a popular idea with everybody. I know that that there's some people that don't believe that a loving God is a God that even ought to be doing judgment, ought to be passing judgment. 
uh, judgment. Okay, all right, maybe the the Hitlers of the world, maybe the the terrorist bombers, maybe the child molesters and the and the rapists sure they 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 deserve judgment but but not the not the rest of us, not the the good people. The problem is there are no good people as measured by god's standard. Uh, just a few verses psalm fourteen three there's no one who does good. Not even one. And the psalmist repeats verbatim again in Psalm 53, 3. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. There is none righteous. Not even one. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one good measured by God's standards. If we refuse to judge ourselves, we bring God's judgment on ourselves. Now, listen... um, Thyatira has got lots of stuff going on. And particularly what is mentioned is this, this woman named uh, Jezebel. By the way, it almost certainly was not her actual name. Quite honestly, no parent would name their child Jezebel. Because I would say probably, not just biblical history, but I would say probably in all the history of the world, there is no woman thought of as more immoral, more ungodly, more wicked than Queen Jezebel, married to King Ahab. Her story is found in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 19. You can read about her demise, by the way, in 2 Kings chapter 9. But Jesus says in his letter here that the people of Thyatira had begun to embrace her, her teaching, which the reference to Jezebel probably gives us maybe a little bit of a clue as to what she may have been teaching. But they had begun to compromise. They'd begun to, to let Jezebel uh, have her effect on her. Listen, uh, it, it might be a bit of a stretch, But some scholars actually believe that this Jezebel that Jesus mentioned, who really, and I don't know if I said this or not, but the the term Jezebel just means that it was a, uh, it's a figurative name of a leader in the church at Thyatira. We don't know really what her real name was, but as far as Jesus was concerned, she is Jezebel. Some scholars actually believe that this Jezebel that Jesus mentions may actually be the wife of the pastor of the church. Whoever she was, she clearly has influence in the church. Whoever she was, she's clearly in some type of leadership or teaching position. And whoever she was, Jesus is clearly not pleased with what's going on. Now, that's not to say that Thyatira was not getting some things right. They were. Jesus commends them for it in verse 19. As a matter of fact, he commends the church in Thyatira for more things than he does any of the other churches. In verse 19, uh, he says, I know your deeds, what you're doing, and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Jesus, and remember, we've talked about that several weeks, that word, know, a special word that's used there. I have intimate, complete, full knowledge of the situation that's going on in your life. Man, I, I know your deeds, I know your faith, I know your love. I, and, and not only that, not only stuff that they're, they're getting right, but Jesus says, and, and you're even doing it better now than you were. I mean, they're really, they're really, man, they're, they're like, woohoo! And we would look and say, wow. Now, now there's a church that anybody would like to pastor. 
There's a church that's getting it right. There's a church that we can look up to as a model. There's a church that we can learn something from. But before we hand out the Church of the Year Award to them, we might better look a little deeper. And it is this teaching that is going on that's coming from Jezebel. It says, But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. They're doing good stuff. They're working hard. They're loving the Lord and loving each other and and they're they're even doing better. I mean, they're they're not, you know, falling out. They're getting stronger and stronger and stronger. But they're tolerating this teaching. I've said this several times along in this series, and I'll say it again today. Theology matters. What you believe about God matters. And listen to me, that's an important subject to bring up because there are churches today that are downplaying the importance of theology, of doctrine, of your belief system. There is a current out there in church growth circles that says, listen, what we need to do is we just need to, we just need to focus on the felt needs of people. We just need to, to, to give really practical stuff, and, and we just need to get out there and, and be the hands and feet of Jesus everywhere we go, and, 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 and that's what we need to do. We do need to do those things. We, we do need to, to focus on, on practical issues that are going on in people's lives. One of the reasons that we, that we started uh, Q&A that we do every week is is to make sure that we're addressing the questions that people are asking, practical, relevant questions as the Bible deals with them. We do need to to get out and and just be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world around us. That's what Love Your Neighbor Day is all about. By the way, we've got one of those coming up in just a few weeks, and we would love to have every single one of you involved in Love Your Neighbor Day. And and you can talk to my brother Bill over there. He'll be happy to explain to you about how to be involved in Love Your Neighbor Day. We, We need to to do those things. We need to be uh, relevant in, in answering the questions that, that people are dealing with. But we cannot jettison our belief system. We cannot jettison our theology. They were getting a lot of things right, but it didn't make up for what they were getting wrong. And what they were getting wrong was their belief system by tolerating this teaching of Jezebel. Oh, not all of them were, but, but apparently all of them were tolerating it. And they're like, oh, let's just Come on, let's just turn away, you know, let's just get along. Let's just whatever. Now, the Nicolaitans, I mentioned them last week. The Nicolaitans aren't mentioned in this letter to the church, but the teaching that Jezebel is teaching sounds very similar to that teaching. And it's a teaching based on a misuse of the grace of God. The teaching was basically this. Hey, hey, we're, we're, we're under grace. You know, Jesus died for our sins. We're under grace. We're covered. Uh, we're okay. We can, we can do whatever we want. It's okay. It doesn't matter if we bow down to their gods. It doesn't matter if we participate in some of their, their uh, immoral acts. None of that stuff really matters because we're under grace. We're saved. Everything's good. We're all right. We're covered. Amen. Hallelujah. We're, 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 we're good to go, so to speak. And that's certainly true if we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're covered by His, his grace. But, but does that mean then that we can just go out and, and do anything that we want to do? That we can just... No, no, it doesn't. Uh, you don't have to take my word for it. Paul addresses that in uh, Romans chapter 6 when he says, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of His wonderful grace? 
And by the way, there are people that believe that. Hey, we're under grace, and we need to show, we need to show off God's grace more, so let's go sin a bunch so we can show that it's covered by God's grace. Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. You see, the Nicolaitans and apparently Jezebel were saying that God's grace gives you the freedom to sin. And Paul and and God is saying, no, exactly the opposite is true. My grace gives you the freedom to not give in to sin. We will never be sinless in this life. I I don't think we'll reach sinless, sinless perfection in this life. But sin doesn't have to be my master. Sin doesn't have to be your master. That's what Paul is saying. And Jezebel's saying, hey, come on, just join in. It's all right. Uh, let me deal with just a couple of terms real quick that, uh, that are in there. Uh, eyes like a flame of fire. It just, it just, most people understand that to be that's just dealing with, with this, this idea of a righteous judge that are eyes that are able to penetrate uh, the, the deepest motives and the, and the darkest things that we hide from God that you can't hide them from him, that he's a righteous judge who sees and then he describes himself as this having feet like burnished bronze. It just speaks of his, of his purity, of his strength. That this, this, is, this is pure, uh, a pure material that is strong. He has the, so, so listen to what he's saying. He says, I'm the judge who is righteous, who has the strength and the power. This is who is speaking to you. We keep hearing that message over and over again in these seven letters, don't you? Jesus keeps saying over and over again, listen to me. I'm, I have authority and I'm speaking it into your life. I am the righteous judge. If we be P-squared, if we refuse to judge ourselves, we bring God's judgment on ourselves. Now, I know we've all been taught, well, I, I, I can't judge. That's, that's between them and God, right? Because if there is any verse in all of the Bible that every single person seems to universally know, believer, non-believer, those that have never even read the Bible, somehow everybody seems to know Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge lest or unless you be judged. Everybody knows that one. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now, never mind that in the context of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus delivers this, he's referring to a, a judging attitude or judging heart based on on my desire to make myself look better than somebody else. And so it's all about really puffing myself up, not actually bringing a person to a place of repentance and, and, and wholeness with God. It's, this is about me and making me look better so I can point fingers and say, ah, they're doing that and, and they're doing that. 
We may not think we we like this idea of judgment, but I'll tell you something. Jesus Jesus says, I'll tell you something, guys. Somebody better do something or else I'm going to deal with it. If we refuse to judge ourselves, we will bring God's judgment on ourselves. Now, let me uh, real quickly give you uh, three ideas uh, when I talk about judgment, what I'm really referring to in here. Let me, let me give you three ideas. First one is this. Three kinds of judgment. It's judgment of me by me. That's the first one. I have to look at my life and I have to recognize the things in there that do not belong, the things that are not of God, the things that God would not be pleased with. I need to recognize it, I need to repent of it, and I need to remove it from my life. The text clearly indicates that Jesus gave Jezebel time to do this. He says, I, I, basically he says, I've been patient with her, been trying to bring her to a place of repentance, but she does not want to repent. You and I have to judge ourselves first and foremost. We have to look at my life and say, Clay, what, what is in your life that doesn't belong there? What is in your life that doesn't glorify God? Uplift other people. It's judgment of me by me. Jezebel didn't want to do it. Second type of judgment. There's judgment of us by us. Now, again, I'm not talking about, um, I saw him, I saw him. uh." I'm talking about. Within the context of Revelation chapter 2, what I'm referring specifically to is those who are in positions of leadership or in a position to teach others. There has to be a reckoning. There has to be an evaluation and a judgment of whether teaching that is going on is biblical or non-biblical. By the way, did you know that every person that teaches a life group here at Cross Culture has to fill out an examination test? Now, some people might say, well, I, 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 don't, I don't like that. I don't care. <laughs> no, I, I, I really, I care. I care. But listen, can I, listen nothing personal, but, but the, the, the pastors, the elders of the, of the church... Excuse my French. Our butts are on the line with God about this. I mean, is there, is there any... Does, does Jesus stutter? Or does he speak pretty plainly that something wrong is being taught and something better be done about it? Now, listen, I, I'm not... It's not a, you know, like super in-depth test. And, and I'm not trying to scare anybody off from being a teacher. As a matter of fact, we need, we need more teachers for life groups. We need more life groups. We need, we need more people stepping up and saying, I'll open my home up for a life group. We need more people stepping up and saying, I'll teach a life group. And I'm not saying that everybody has to agree on every single particular, you know, thing perfectly. But where major doctrinal issues are concerned, we have to be doing everything that we can to make sure that we are biblical in it. It has to be judgment of us by us. We have to look at it and make sure that we're being biblical in what we teach. By the way, that would include you towards me. Too, if I were teaching something that were not biblical, somebody needs to call me on it. Third type of judgment is this: judgment of us and me by God, and that's what it was coming to in here. Ultimately, Jesus says, "Hey, okay, you're not going to deal with it. I'll deal with it," and, it, and it's harsh. I'm going to put her on a bed of sickness. Most people think that's a reference to the fact that part of Jezebel's teaching, remember, is very loose morals and, and sexual promiscuity uh, that involved the bedroom, so to speak. And so Jesus said, I'm going to put her on a bed, all right. I'm going to put her on a bed of sickness. And everybody else that's part of this thing that's bought into this with her. And I'm going to kill her children. 
almost certainly a reference to those who have become her disciples, so to speak. They've, they, they've bought into her program. They've, they've come along. They've been raised up in this teaching that she's teaching. And the church is just turning, turning, turning the other way and just letting it go on. Literally, it reads in the text, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, kill them with death. I'm going to deal with it. And listen to this. Don't miss this because this is you and me right here. Um, here it is, verse, and I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the, and watch, here it is, and all the churches will know. You see, you got to look at this in, in, in a much broader perspective. God's as concerned about cross-culture church in 2010 as he was the church in Thyatira 2,000 years ago. It's the same thing. All the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now, the implication in the context is that God judges even in this life. Oh, I know someday there's a judgment coming for those with, without Christ. And even those of us who are in relationship with Christ will stand before him, give an account for, for our lives and what we did with it. But, but the implication of this text is when I need to deal with something that's, that's that important in the life of a church, I will deal with it if you won't deal with it. Judgment of us and me by God. So that all the churches will look and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Look what God did over in Thyatira. We, we, better, we better evaluate what we're teaching. We better evaluate what we're practicing. We better evaluate who, who, who's saying what and, and who's listening to what and, and what all we're doing. Do you understand why I keep saying to you, I've said it over and over, do you understand why I keep saying to you, theology matters? It does matter what you believe. It matters to God, it ought to matter to us. He closes out this letter like he closes out all of the letters with, this, with basically a promise of blessing, the opportunity to rule with him in the millennial kingdom, this charge to hold fast. There it is again, same thing last week. We were talking about holding firm, hold fast. It says it again here this week, hold fast what you have until I come. It's really the first reference in the book of Revelation to the second coming of Christ. It shows up there. It talks about his millennial kingdom and we're going to be ruling and reigning with him. And then there it is in verse 29. It's shown up every week. And, and maybe this is your week or my week to really hear it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? That's what he's saying. Are you listening? Are you making the changes in your life? Now, let me, let me wrap this thing up. Maybe it's kind of hard for us to, to, to get our mind around, okay, well, that, you know, that was an, a, a false kind of teaching and it involved idol worship and, and sexual you know, immorality and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm not into all that. Okay, but the principle still applies. Am I, am I living my life biblical? Am I, am I making sure that, that things aren't coming into my life that God would not want in my life. That's really what he's saying. Are you listening to what I'm saying to you? Are you making the changes? Repent. It shows up over and over and over. Turn around. Change. Do something different. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If we, you and me, refuse to judge ourselves, we'll face God's judgment on ourselves. Well, as we heard today, Jesus cares about the purity of his church. The woman Jesus refers to as Jezebel was taking the church down a road of compromise. Jesus' word to the church was that there is a consequence for failing to deal with false theology. 
We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross, and it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, joy, and hope. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now, this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Q&A time at Cross Culture Church. Uh, each week we take a question that uh, you've filled out and dropped in the offering box, and we try and deal with a, a subject matter that uh, someone has a question about. By the way, before we get to that, I do want to say, if you're here as our guest, we appreciate you coming out, and uh, we always appreciate our guests filling out your Connect card, dropping it in one of our offering boxes uh, back there at the back of the room. We'd love to have a record of your being with us. We'd love to minister to you in any way that we possibly can. We'd love to get to know you better if you'd... Uh, if you'd like to get to know us uh, better, answer any questions, prayer requests, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so use that Connect card and drop it in there. But today's Q&A uh, session question uh, I thought was kind of an interesting one. Uh, what does the Bible say about tattoos or piercing? Have you always wondered about that? <laughs> what does the Bible say about tattoos or or piercing. Well, uh, let, let's jump right into it. One of the primary texts that is used against the idea of getting a tattoo or getting a, uh, a piercing is uh, found in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You've probably read this verse before. Maybe you've had it used before by your parents when you said, can I get a tattoo? And they knew this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, do, not, uh, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, the argument goes something like this. Well, uh, if you, you know, God made you the way you are. You're special just the way you are. And he made you that way. And if you do any kind of changes or alterations to your body, um, that, that would not be honoring God. Therefore, you should not do that. Anybody ever heard that? that was that what you said? I think I use that on my kids. <laughs> no, you know. Um, well, the problem, really, the problem with 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 taking that line of thought on uh, this passage of scripture is that if if that stands true, then then should you ever make any alteration about it? If that stands true, should should a doctor do surgery on a baby that's born with a club foot? Should should you get braces put on your teeth if they're, if they're not straight? Should we get our hair cut or clip our nails or, 
get a tan or, or anything else like that. The truth is, in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, these verses are actually talking about sexual sin. It, it has nothing to do with what you, you know, piercings or anything like that. It has to do with, with sexual immorality, using your body, and there were people that were certainly clear were doing it, using their body in ways that were degrading and dishonoring to God by participating in sexual acts, be it premarital sex or extramarital sex or unnatural sex or whatever it was, uh, that that if they were followers of Jesus, uh, Paul's saying that you should have no part in this. So we have to be careful of, of taking a verse and making a really broad application if it's a little more specific in, uh, in what is intended. It is true, certainly, that we need to honor God with our body, with our actions, with our, with our attitudes. But in its context, he's actually dealing with sexual sin. When it comes to verses that deal specifically with tattoos and or piercings, I'm going to try and deal with those together, but let me say this. There's very little said about piercings. What is said, um, and I didn't, didn't give you those verses today. We, you could look, we could look this up, but, but what little is said about piercings, whether it's ears, some possibility of some nose piercing, when it's mentioned, it used to be, it seems to be either neutral or perhaps even positive in, uh, in some instances. But uh, when it comes to verses that deal specifically with tattoos and or piercing, if you could say. There's very little mention. As a matter of fact, there's really only one verse that uh, even addresses it. And it looks like this. It's found in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 28. Do not cut your bodies for the dead and do not mark your skin with tattoos. I am the Lord. How many of y'all heard that one? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I am. Now, when you read a verse like that, let me get through this. I, I know I need to hurry. When you, when you read a verse like that, you usually get one of two reactions. You will either get, the first reaction might be that, well, that's Old Testament. Y'all heard that? That's Old Testament. We're under New Testament. Now, people make that statement as if uh, things in the Old Testament have no relevance whatsoever, as if things in the Old Testament don't mean anything at all. And that's, that's simply not true. It is true that we are no, un, no longer under what's known as Levitical law. We're no longer required to, to keep dietary laws, which were specifically for the nation of Israel, dietary laws and certain practices that had to do with health issues and certain festivals that they had to keep. Those things were shadows. They were types. They were pictures of the coming Messiah of Christ. They were fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And so therefore, New Testament makes it clear that those things no longer apply. But it doesn't. We can't just blanketly say, well, that's Old Testament. Could I remind everybody the Ten Commandments are found in the Old Testament? And nobody would argue that they need to be thrown out. Nobody would say thou shalt not murder no longer applies. Because that's Old Testament. So you, you can't just say, well, that's Old Testament. We're, we're New Testament. The other reaction that you might get to a verse like that is, well, there it is. Case closed, son. No tattoo for you. <laughs> Black and white, plain as day. Uh, do not mark your skin with tattoos. I am the Lord. Well, again, in the same way that you shouldn't just make a blanket statement and say that the Old Testament doesn't apply because we're now in the New Testament era, in the same way you shouldn't take a, a verse and simply say, boom, this is it, without understanding the context of the verse. For instance, in this Leviticus 19, if you look at it in its entire context, here's what it looks like. When you enter the land and plant fruit trees, leave the fruit trees unharvested for the first three years and consider it forbidden. That had to do, God was teaching the people that, that, that there had to be a time 
period of, of, of purification because they were taking this land and God was giving it to them, but it had been, been lived in by, by people that were very vile and corrupt and ungodly. And so God wanted them to clearly understand that there's a, there's a breaking point. Uh, leave unharvested the first three years, consider it forbidden. Do not eat it. In the fourth year, the entire crop must be consecrated to the Lord as a celebration of praise. That's a principle in Scripture that's known as first fruits principle. Giving back to God still applies today. Giving back to God the first fruits uh, of our labor, of, of our income. That was what it was designed to do for the people of Israel. Finally, in the fifth year, you may eat the fruit. If you follow this pattern, your harvest will increase. Now, I don't know of any fruit growers that would, would say that this applies today, but right there in Leviticus 19, nobody would say, well, I'm not, I'm not picking any of this fruit for the first four years. I'm not, I'm not touching. I am the Lord your God. Do not eat meat that has not been drained of its blood. Do not practice fortune-telling or witchcraft. Do not trim off the hair on your temples or trim your beards. Do not cut your bodies for the dead and do not mark your skin with tattoos. I am the Lord. In its context, and, and even reading further in Leviticus and just doing historical background, you come to understand that the nation of Israel is entering into or getting ready to enter into the promised land. This land, God has been promising them for hundreds of years. This land is occupied by and then was also surrounded by lots of different tribes with lots of different beliefs. And, and all of those beliefs were, were ungodly. Many of them had immoral practices involved in them. And each one of the things listed there in Leviticus 19, other than the fruit thing where he's, it's a purification process, but all those things where he says do not partake of this and others, even the trimming of your beard, the, the, your, your sideburns and all that stuff, it had to do with some of the cultic, even hairstyles of some of the priests of some of the cultic worships that went on. So what God is trying to say to the people of Israel, when you go in, listen, you have got to totally separate yourself from these practices that are idolatrous, that are ungodly, and that will take you away from me instead of towards me. That's what God's always working on, trying to get us to understand that he's trying to draw us near to him, and the things of the world are always trying to draw us away from him. Within the context of Leviticus 19, it's clearly talking about cultic worship practices, which part of that included cutting of their body for the dead. Uh, it was a way to express your, your, your sincere uh, pain and hurt of the loss of someone, but it was also a part of letting your lifeblood, was the way it would be put, your lifeblood is being given for the dead so that they can live on into eternity. It was almost uh, ancestral worship. It was ungodly. So God says that's what it is. Tattoos today have no connection to that at all. Tattoos today are, are a decoration. They're a, a way of self-expression or dare I even say it, beautification for some that, that might choose to do it. So, as I understand Scripture, the Bible does not prohibit piercings or, <laughs> or tattoos. It, it, the Scripture is just not... It's, it's not it's dealing with something that, uh, in its context, was talking about worship that was leading people away from God. And that's what God said you should not be a part of. Now, having said that, let me say this. If you are considering getting a tattoo, um, especially if you're a minor, if you're considering getting a tattoo, uh, let, me, let me just remind you of, of a couple of things, Okay. Oh, oh, I, I almost forgot to mention this. And I know I'm taking more than five minutes, but that's all right. Um, 
in the midst of all this, I meant to say to you, there is one overarching principle that you need to remember as far as whether it's tattoos or the clothing that you wear or anything else. There's an overarching principle. Both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter address it. Paul says this, 1 Timothy chapter 2, And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Now, I'll talk about it in just a minute. Now, the Peter text. Your adornment must not be merely external braiding the hair and wearing gold, jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. What both Paul and Peter are saying is that the things that you wear, be it jewelry, be it your hairstyle, be it your clothing style, the things that you wear should not be the things that people notice about you. They should not be the things that people are attracted to, that your, that your person as, as a follower of Jesus, your person should be such that that's what they notice first, that that's what they look at, and that's what they take notice of. I don't think he's saying you can't wear jewelry. I don't think he's saying you can't wear makeup. Uh, I, I, I don't think he's going to any of that stuff. The, the, the implication is that it's your spirit. It's who you are. That's what people should notice. And if you're drawing attention to yourself with other things, and the intention is to draw attention to yourself. That's the thing that he says you need to repent of that, you need to turn away from that, and you need to reevaluate why you want to do whatever it is, whether it's a tattoo or a dress or a pair of pants or, or anything else. Now, having said that, let me give you the, some, just some thoughts if you're considering getting a tattoo. Number one, am I legally of an age to get a tattoo? Because we, we would not want to break the law. Number two, if I live my, with my parents, would my parents support my decision? I'm sorry, but it has to be in there. Remember one of those Ten Commandments? Honor thy father and thy mother. Talking, referring to you living in their household and, and, and connected to that is this next question. Would I be defying the authority God gave my parents over me at my current age? If you, you may want a tattoo worse than anything in the world. But if your parents, even after, if you say, you go home, well, Pastor Clay said we can get one. If your parents say, I don't care what Pastor Clay says, you're not getting one. You honor your mother and your father. That's what's important. Remember, it's, it's the attitude. It's the heart. Um, would I still want this particular image when I get older? I know nobody thinks about that. Hey, when you're 23, Popeye on your bicep might look cool. But when you're 53, Popeye might look like Popeye or something. You know, it, just, it doesn't, doesn't work out the same. So you might really actually want to think a little farther into the future about some of that stuff. What if my future mate wouldn't like having to see this image for a lifetime? You ever think about that? I think it's something worthy to consider. And then the last one, would this image dishonor God? You need to ask yourself that. If you say, man, I really want this and it's really just for me and it's just something, is it going to dishonor God? That's, uh, that's just something... To consider, I, I tell you the truth. After you know, I I I'd never really thought about this, but after doing this study this week, I really thought, you know what, uh, this it, it's okay, it's okay to do this. So I, I I went and got a tattoo this week, y'all. And I wanted to, I wanted to show y'all my my tattoo. So um, what do y'all think? Came out pretty well. I it, let me tell you, something, it was painful, but uh, but uh, but I I got it. No, yeah, that's. Uh, not really. It's it's fake. It's fake. But 
<laughs> All right, so that's Q&A for today. <laughs>